full knowledge of God. From Psalm 139, uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter, um, Psalm 139. Let's just read the whole text and then we'll come down through it. The psalmist says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as, I, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate those that hate you, O Lord, and do not I loathe those who rise up against you. I hate them with complete hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting." This truly is probably one of my favorite psalms. It is so rich with the character and attributes of God and um, on a personal level as well. But when we think about knowledge, knowledge as being wonderful and specifically the knowledge of God, you think about how many long for more knowledge in this world. We've got so much knowledge at our fingertips. We have an untold number of books printed that we can access and uh, whoever thought today that we would carry around a computer in our pocket, right, and uh, have so much knowledge just wherever we go, we can access that uh, anytime we want. Um, there's literally, literally a wealth of knowledge at our fingertips that uh, we can access at any time. But when we think about knowledge, is there a knowledge that surpasses all other knowledge? And uh, we all know the answer to that. That knowledge is the knowledge of God. Knowing Him... Uh, who he is as he's revealed in his word, but more importantly, knowing him personally uh, and intimately within our own hearts. Now, David is attributed to be the writer of this beautiful psalm, and uh, there is some debate as to who the author is, but David is most generally received as the author of who penned this psalm. But regardless, uh, like we discussed with uh, the author of Hebrews Sunday morning, who's the real author of this? It's the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, he's the one who has inspired this for us to have his truth and uh, inspired it as God's word for us to know. And um, 
many students of the Bible are drawn to this passage when studying the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. This passage reveals these attributes of God. It reveals His sovereignty. It reveals His creative and redemptive work uh, for us as His people. And so this psalm uh, has great theological study. But more than just the theological study, it is also it is applied theology. And I think that's important, um, that we understand that theology is meant to be known for us, but is also meant to be applied by us. How do we apply the Word of God? What does this mean for us in our life today uh, in light of the context in which it was given when the original author wrote it? Uh, and so notice that the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And this knowledge that's too wonderful for him, uh, beyond really what his mind can comprehend, is all that he says here about God with his omniscience and his omnipresence. And so I want us to look here at a few things that uh, I'm going to reference this as David, that David brings out, uh, or that the psalmist brings out, about the infinite character of God and how that intertwines into our lives as his people. So notice when in our notes here tonight, number one, we see the psalmist's recognition of God. The psalmist's recognition of God. What does the psalmist recognize about God? What does he reveal to us about God? And I've broken this down into three sub-points here, just, and this is where the bulk of the message is as we'll look at the first several verses together. But notice with me, God's knowledge overwhelms him. God's knowledge overwhelms him. And we see this in verse 1 as he begins. David says in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have searched me and known me. Now when someone searches for something, they're typically seeking to find something out. Now in a world full of questions, we've all got questions in our day. Uh, Google has become the great tool uh, that we use to figure out the answer to our questions. Anybody in here uh, a Googler? You got a question, you pull out your phone and Google comes up and you can type it in and you can just look it up and figure out what the answer is. I mean, I find myself use Google quite a bit, but when we think about that, that's our form of searching here. We think about God searching here. God does not have to search for anything. Why is that? Because God lacks no knowledge of anything. Uh, He's all-knowing. He has complete and full knowledge And David is using figurative language here to describe God's knowledge of him thoroughly, as if God had searched out every little detail of David, and God has all knowledge of David. I like how Spurgeon put it, and I'll often put quotes in in your notes as well so you can have them. Spurgeon said in reference to this text, "...searching ordinarily implies a measure of ignorance which is removed by observation." Of course, this is not the case with the Lord." But the meaning of the psalmist is that the Lord knows us as thoroughly as if he had examined us minutely and had pried into the most secret corners of our being. And that's exactly how David is speaking of the Lord, as if God had had done a search on us and knows every detail about us. Now, he didn't have to actually perform a search. He simply knows all things, but he's using that language for us to understand how deeply God knows David. And when we look at how deeply God knows David, we must understand that the same applies to us. God knows us. God knows us in every facet of our life, every detail. 
The prophet Jeremiah wrote, or the Lord through the prophet said in Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So we see that same language being used by the prophet Jeremiah as the Lord speaking. So David knows that nothing in him, absolutely nothing in him, is hidden from the Lord. Now, as you come to verse 2, David continues describing how penetrating God's knowledge of him truly is. In verse 2, what does he say? He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. God knows every move that David makes. He knows David's sitting down and his rising up. Um, He knows what he does all throughout his days. You know, we can only know of others what we see them do, right? And we all come to church together here, and we can see each other. We interact with each other, and uh, we see how we behave and talk among each other. But when we go off into our lives, we do not see each other. You, you, don't see, you don't see some of your other brothers and sisters in some of their weaker moments, maybe when they get angry or impatient or irritable. or uh, We don't see everything about each other in our life, right? Uh, we have no clue what each other does in our own time when we're not around them in their presence. But the opposite is true of the Lord. The Lord knows everything about us at every moment of every day. As the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. So there's nothing about us that God doesn't know about. Beyond just merely seeing someone do something, imagine knowing what someone is going to do and also why they're going to do it. You Think about that. Imagine knowing what somebody's going to do before they ever do it and also knowing their motivation and purpose as to why they're going to do that. Now, notice what David says. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. You discern my thoughts from afar. See, God understands David's thoughts way ahead of time. The word for thoughts used here, and I'll have that reference there from from the Hebrew lexicon, refers to a want or a purpose, uh, which which one has in one's mind. So, So God knows what David does when he's going to do it, and why he's going to do it, the purpose behind what he's thinking. You know, as a parent, sometimes I wish I had that kind of knowledge of my children. You ever seen young kids, and they just do some of the most crazy things in the world, and as a parent, you just look and look at what they did, and you have to wonder, why did you do that? (laughs) Why did you do that? You know, back when uh, we were having all that COVID crisis, and... uh, it appeared that toilet paper was going to be the cure to COVID. Everybody, you know, snatched it all up, right? Uh, you know, David was about two at that point, and uh, in our house, he that was his age where he got to the point where he was, you know, taking toilet paper and winding it all through the hallway and all up and down the house, and uh, when we went and weren't catching him, and, and I think, why in the world is he doing that? That was his thing, and and uh, nowadays, they just, you know, they tornado the rooms, take all their stuff out and fling it everywhere. And usually, I'll come and ask them when they do something silly like this, why did you do that? And the answer is always one word, because. Because. That's, you know, that's not really an answer, but, you know, that's, that's how they're on their mind. They had a purpose in their, in their, in their you know, childlike head at, 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 at this age. But, but you think about God. God knows what you're going to think what you're going to do from afar. Now, this shows distance of time between God, what God knows we will do 
and when we actually do it and why we're going to do it. I mean, think, think of even in eternity past, God knew what I was going to do and say right now. I mean, this, just, this is beyond what my mind can really comprehend and wrap around. Tomorrow and every day of the rest of your life, God has perfect knowledge of it. So think about the wonder of God's knowledge. Notice he continues in verse 3. He says, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. What does it mean that God searches out his path? He searches out his path. Well, the King James would translate this as compasseth or the the, the NASB would translate as scrutinize. The ESV uses here to search out. So there's a few different translations of this uh, Hebrew, Hebrew word. But it essentially means to measure up, all right? And it, and it carries the idea of, of winnowing or sifting out something. So this compares God's penetrating knowledge to the process of winnowing grain, separating what is worthless from what is valuable. And as Spurgeon rightly said this, there is chaff in all of our wheat, and the Lord divides them with unerring precision. You see, you see, God is, God is intricately woven into the details of our days, and He knows about our life and our day, what's worthless and what's worthy, what's profitable. And I often have to get my own mind back into stewarding it to what is profitable to God and to His kingdom. Uh, because really, when we examine our lives, there's a lot of things that just don't matter a whole lot that we give our lives to. Um, things in this world that they don't make anything, any kind of impact for the kingdom of God. They don't profit us in our Christian life. So there, there's a lot of things like that. So you think about how God is in, interconnected with our days. And so connected with this, David says, God is acquainted with all my ways. He's well aware of uh, all of our life, what's useless, that's the chaff, and what's profitable, which would be the wheat. That's which, that which is productive unto the Lord. Now, that applies to our actions, that applies to our words, uh, it applies to every detail of our life. And so notice also that David says there in verse 4, he says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. I mean, before I ever speak, God knows what I'm going to speak. And uh, that's just fascinating to me. In verse 5, David says, You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. And so here we see God's hand upon him in an all-encompassing way. Behind, before, in the middle, God fully encompasses David in his life. Fully encompasses. And, And this is essentially what he's saying. David cannot escape. God's knowledge of him. David cannot escape God's knowledge of him at all. He is surrounded. He is besieged by God's knowledge of him. You know, we as human beings, we all have areas of our life that we would rather not be known by other people, right? We don't publicize our bank account information or our social security number or uh, we don't uh, publicize when we've maybe had our last spat with our spouse or maybe a a sin we struggle with. We don't, we don't like to make those sorts of things known, right? Those are things that we would rather keep private. But when it comes to God, there is no such thing as private. There's no such thing as keeping anything from Him. And so we think about what David is saying here. The knowledge that God has of him completely encompasses all of his life, and he cannot escape it. And so in verse 6, here's why he says, 
Such knowledge, the fact that God knows all of this about me, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I can't wrap my mind around. I can't fathom the depth of God's knowledge, both of me and of all things. He is overwhelmed by such knowledge, the kind of knowledge he's been describing. It's, it's not a human knowledge. It's a supernatural, a surpassing Wonderful knowledge in the sense of extraordinary. It's incomprehensible. God's knowledge truly is overwhelming to us. And I love this text that truly conveys this. If you'll turn your Bible to Romans 11, and we'll read this together. Romans 11, and verse 33 through verse 36. What a, what a marvelous passage this is of Scripture. Romans 11, and verse 33 through verse 36, I think, uh, communicates the depth of what David is saying here about God's knowledge of him. He says here, oh, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That passage, I tell you, that's just such a rich doxology that we could never really wrap our minds around. Uh, And so the inexhaustible knowledge of God that he has is glorious to his character. And so we must think of this in relation to David. David knows this about God and how it relates to David. But I think it's important for us to think of this theology in this way. What does God know of me? We already know He knows everything, right? But sometimes asking that question might bring to the surface some things we think that are kind of hidden, but then we remember, oh wait, God already knows these things. Who are we really, and what does God see in our life, uh, even in our closets? But notice with me, letter B in our notes, we see with David... His recognition of God, not only God's knowledge overwhelming him, but we see God's presence compasses him. God's presence compasses him, surrounds him. So David's continuing in the depth of God's character in the fact that there is nowhere anyone can go to escape God. You look at verse 7, he puts forward the question, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, he's not expecting an answer. This is a rhetorical question. The answer is in the question itself. Where can I go? The answer is obvious. Nowhere. Is there anywhere anyone can go to escape the presence of God? The answer to that is no. David further answers this question further in verse 8. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Now, when David speaks of heaven, he means the highest point. When he speaks of Sheol, he means the lowest point, the underworld. And so these two places form a mirrorism or a meaning that, uh, of giving a picture of everything in between. From the highest point to the lowest point, doesn't matter what you could possibly name, God's presence is there. God's presence is there. The language is used in Amos of having nowhere to flee from the escape of God's judgment. Read Amos 9 and verse 2. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So that same language is used by the prophet Amos 
That there's nowhere they could go to escape the judgment of God. And so David is using the same contrast. There's nowhere you can go to escape the very presence of God. Friend, if mankind could escape the presence of God, he by all means would. What does Romans tell us? Romans 3, there's none that seeks after God. When, at, when God came walking in the cool of the day in the garden after Adam sinned, Adam didn't run and greet God, did he? He was hiding himself. If man could, he would run away from the presence of God. He would try to escape the presence of God. But he can't. He can't. It's an impossibility. You know, even some of God's people have sought to do the same in one sense or another. We often probably think of the prophet Jonah. You know, God called Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach to Nineveh. Jonah hated Nineveh. He decides, I'm going to go the opposite way. He's going to go a thousand miles the other direction. It's the Tarshish. But you read Jonah 1, 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, I don't think that Jonah was a dummy. He's a prophet of the Lord. He knows that God's omnipresent, right? He, he, but in his disobedience, his thinking is totally skewed. And that's true of all of us. When we're living in disobedience, our thinking is totally skewed. He knew he could not run God, but surely if he went the opposite direction, far from where the Lord is prominently known, then maybe the Lord would just maybe let go of this calling. Maybe he would just say, ah, maybe it's not a big deal. Jonah can just go on his own way. Maybe the Lord's presence wouldn't be so strong if he went to Tarshish. Maybe he could just you know, avoid God's call, how wrong Jonah was. You see, Jonah's location didn't change God's calling to him or God's presence about him. God's presence with Jonah, you read that book, it's clear, it's the same. When he goes down to uh, Joppa, God's right there as he buys that ticket. And he gets on the ship and gets out into the sea in the storm, God's right there. When he's in the fish, he's right there. You can't escape the presence of God. doesn't matter. I like what the prophet Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 23, 24. He says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? This is God speaking. Declares the Lord, Do not I fill heaven and earth? Declares the Lord. That's that's just fascinating. God fills the heavens and the earth. Now David continues here in verse 9 through 12. We'll kind of come through this. I've got to keep a a steady pace here if I'm going to get through it all. You come to verse 9 through verse 12. And he says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, he uses the sea as an analogy. We already saw in Jonah's case, God's there. If he tries to hide in the darkness, there's still no cover. From the sight of God, as verse 11, he shows us that even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now, we go out at night, and it's certainly not near as bright, right? Even on a full moon. You might be able to see a little bit, but it's not like the sun. There's no such thing as darkness. No such thing as hiding in the dark uh, from the Lord with God. There's no darkness, no daytime with God like it is with us. And uh, we know that man, naturally, he loves darkness. Spiritually, he abides in darkness. He likes to perform his evil deeds in darkness. Why is it that the majority of crime happens at night? Because it's harder to see, right? 
it's easier to hide what you're doing, and it's easier to disappear into the night uh, if uh, you happen to be getting caught. And, and so what we find is that God does not see as we do. He says, David says, darkness is as light with you. So God's presence compasses him at all times, and so it does with us too. Now that is a, that's a theology of both comfort and warning. Uh, both comfort that God is with us at all times as his people, but also warning that he's with us and sees everything we're doing, that we ought to be living for him. He's omnipresent. Notice with me letter C with David's recognition of God. We see that God's purposes uplift him. God's purposes uplift him. And this is where David brings out the fact that God has created him uniquely and intentionally with a purpose for this life. If you look at verse 13, he says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, God designed every aspect of David, and so he does with us. So he does with each and every one of us. He is our designer. He is our maker. God created his soul or spirit, his innermost being. When he says he formed his inward parts, the Hebrew word there for the inward parts refers to the innermost, most secret part of man. God created his body when he says, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. The the whole person of David was knit together inside the womb of his mother. And it's always fascinated me as you examine the, the reproductive process from beginning to end, it is fascinating that that, that God has created humanity to multiply. Humans can make other humans. That God has designed that. It's beyond what we can fathom in our minds, that God made man in this way. And, and having had a baby in the last year, it's always fascinating just to see the development from the, that very first ultrasound. And you, you get a picture of that baby in the womb, and it just looks like a, just a little ball of nothing, Right? We know there's life. Life begins at conception. There's life there. And then you go to your next ultrasound. You begin to see hands and feet and legs. And you go to the next one, and they're, they're measuring organs and all the things that we have to have for our body to function. And then all the way you get to the very end, and there comes the baby at birth, and it's a, a full human, fully developed, fully ready to enter into this new world of life. It's a fascinating thing. That God has designed this uh, in in creating mankind. And what does this cause in David? Verse 14, what does this cause in David when he thinks about how that God formed him in his his mother's womb? What does this form in in David? Three words. He says, I praise you. I praise you. Now, I understand every day we ought to thank God at the very least. Thank him for another day of life. Every day that you get to enjoy is a gift. Every day is. And, I, and we think about our days, they're numbered. We don't, we don't know how long our days are going to be, and we'll see that here in a moment. But verse 14, David says, I praise you. Why will David praise this all-knowing, all-present God? Because God created him with purpose and intention. He made him as he is. What other response should we give than praise? He says here, I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. 
You see, the life began in the womb of our mothers was given to us by God. And David describes this development by God in verse 15. Notice what he says. He says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Now, he says here his frame was not hidden when he was being made in secret. He's referring to his body again, his frame, when he was being formed in the womb. And, and why was David not hidden in the womb? Because God knew David before he was ever born. And he had a purpose for his life before he was ever born. Another great example of this is Jeremiah. I love what we see here. We'll, we'll read this together. Jeremiah chapter number 1 and verse number 5. This is where God reveals his call to Jeremiah. But Jeremiah's call didn't start at this point in Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah had this call on his life before he was ever even conceived, before he was ever even born. And we think of how, how God's purposes work in us in his sovereign plan for our life. Jeremiah 1 and verse 5, the Lord says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, before he's formed, I knew you. How can you know somebody that's not even in existence yet? Because God has intended Jeremiah's creation. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah is learning something here that's quite valuable for all of us. Before Jeremiah was ever even conceived, God had already declared, decreed, you're going to be the prophet for this day and time to the, my people. And so David says he was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Let me break that down for a moment. The word for intricately woven refers here to a weaver of colored cloth or an embroiderer of colored thread, a craftsman who decorates cloth with colorful patterns using a needle. I don't, I don't know if anybody in here sews or crochets or anything like that, but that takes a lot of very patient, detailed, intricate work. I had to learn crochet in middle school, and man, I just I did not like doing that class, okay? Um, I, I, when I first learned, I thought, man, I can't believe in how to do this. And then I started to learn how much it takes. I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I give credit to those who sew. I mean, we've had people who sewn quilts and given us blankets, and I look at it, and I think, man, I know that took a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort. Sweet lady I used to work at Kroger with uh, back in Nicholasville, Kentucky, and I ain't talked to her forever. She'll text me every now and then, but she follows me on Facebook and sees when we have a new baby. And uh, for every baby we've had, she has, she has hand-sewn a, a little blanket and sent it to us in the mail and asked us what color we'd like. And, and I just know it takes a lot of time and, and energy on her part. Uh, very detailed. But when you think about this in relation to God, think, think of this in relation to Him designing us and crafting us and, and, and making us. We're detailed for a reason, for a purpose. We're all made differently. I mean, it'd be boring if we were all the same, wouldn't it? I would hate to be in a room filled with me's, you know? I mean, we, we, we're all made differently for a purpose, for a reason. And so God has intricately woven us in our creation, but he also says uh, for in the depths of the earth. Why does David say that? Well, that's really a poetic expression. It parallels the secret place of the womb. Now, in the psalmist's day, inside the womb would have been as remote to the human eye 
and knowledge as any region of the depths of the earth, the netherworld, the Sheol, right? Uh, they didn't have access to see it. It was just all in secret. Um, they didn't have ultrasounds. They didn't have visuals of the baby in the womb. And it was secret development governed by God. And even though we can look into the womb, it's still secret development governed by God. All of it is. He continues this truth in verse 16, that God's eyes saw my unformed substance. And th- this just catches me. We, we think about the, the tragic issue of abortion in our day. Look at, some, the, look at the baby that's conceived in the womb and look at it as if it's unformed. It's, oh, it's not life. What does David say? He says, you saw my unformed substance. My unformed substance. Scripture is very clear on this issue. Very, very clear on this issue. He says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when, I, when as yet there was none of them. You see, David's referencing the fact that his life is already planned out by God before his life ever begins. His days were planned for him before he had ever lived one day. You see, God has our days planned out before we ever experience them. Proverbs 16 and verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Have you ever made your own plans for a day and they got changed? You think that was accidents or coincidence? See, I have to bring myself to remind myself about that because especially if something bad happens in a day and I think, why in the world this happened? I really have no reason to question it. The Lord wanted it to happen for a reason. I tell you, when I was in Houston, we were coming back. For, we had to drive about 30 minutes north to get to our house, and we'd always pass a Chick-fil-A, and it was a Wednesday night, and we would get Chick-fil-A on the way home, and one night we were driving through Houston. If you know Houston traffic, there's no words to describe that. If you've been there, you know. And um, anyway, they have all these concrete middle, you know, things in, in the little side roads, and I'm sitting there eating a Chick-fil-A sandwich. It's late. I'm tired. I've been to the church all day, ready to get home, go to bed. And I just, about 30 miles an hour, I hit that little concrete thing and boom, with my front tire. And I thought, oh, maybe we'll be okay. And two seconds later, I hear that, you know what I'm talking about? So I had to pull over, change a tire, exhausted, hungry, hangry, really, you know, hungry and angry at the same time. And I'm questioning, Lord, why in the world did you let this happen? And I have to come back and remember that God wanted this to happen for a reason. I really didn't have a right to question it. You see, we don't know all the details of God's sovereign will for our lives, but we do know that we are to live by faith in accordance with His will. You see, a person, we make our own decisions and we're responsible for them, but at the same time, paradoxically, God directs the steps of our days. It's a mystery I can't wrap my mind around, but I'm not going to deny it either. Now, you just ponder the depth of detail that God has in our lives. Sometimes we think our days are full of coincidence, troubles, and triumphs. I just don't believe much in coincidence. I do believe in providence, though. Now, David sums up this wonderful knowledge in verse 17 through 18 by describing the vastness of God's thoughts towards him and his knowledge as a whole. He says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. You read that and think again of how how this all-knowing and all-present God impacts our own life. His thoughts towards us as his people. 
You see, this is how God is interwoven into the lives of His people. And even when all seems around us, things are bad, that doesn't change God's knowledge of you, doesn't change His presence around you, it does not change His purpose for you. These are comforting truths. This theology of God is comforting to us. He's always good. He's always working things about for good and for His glory. David says in Psalm 40 and verse 5, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. They are more than can be told. So this is David's great recognition of God. He recognizes things about God. God's knowledge overwhelms him. God's presence compasses him. God's purposes uplift him. But notice with me number two. We see the psalmist's response towards God. We see his response towards this almighty, sovereign Lord. And that's in verse 19 through the rest of the chapter. And I broke this down into just two simple things. Verse 19 through 22, we see David's heart, that he despises the way of the wicked. He despises the way of the wicked. He knows who God is. He knows that God is holy. He's righteous and just. And he says in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. Why does David say this? See, David sees these e- the evil of these bloody men. He says, O men of blood, depart from me. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. You see, David wants these wicked, bloody men far from his presence. They were bloodthirsty murderers. That's essentially what he's saying. And David, knowing God, Having a heart for God, he wants righteous justice from God to be executed. So David, in light of all that he has said thus far about this marvelous God, is closely aligning himself with the holy, sovereign Lord that he has described. Now David knows that wickedness will not go unpunished, and that's something to consider and take comfort in ourselves. We see a lot of wickedness in our world. We must remember, it may look like the wicked get away with their wickedness, but they're not getting away with anything. They may elude the police. They may elude proper justice in the land. But there's coming a judgment day when all of the wicked will stand before God and He will enact His righteous judgment. Psalm 7 and verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every Day. We think, will God really slay the wicked? Absolutely He will. Absolutely He will. He has done so through history. As you read the Old Testament, and there's coming a final day of judgment when all the wicked will be eradicated from this world while all the righteous will be preserved and brought on into that eternal state. Psalm 145 and verse 20, The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. And so knowing this... David wants nothing to do with these wicked people, as he says, O men of blood, depart from me. I think it's important that God's people today should also want nothing to do with the wicked of this world. We ought not to be tied to them. We ought to be aware of what is wicked and what is not. You see, their judgment is coming, so we must not align ourselves with that which is wicked, but rather that which is righteous. Now, David speaks further in this response in verse 20 through verse 22 They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. 
He's describing these wicked men. How that they are against God. They speak blasphemously against God. They take God's name in vain. And David's response in verse 21 is, Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do not I loathe those who rise up against you? Now that may sound pretty harsh, but David is expressing his passionate rejection of wicked people, of wickedness, those who despise the Lord. Now, the word hate here, it really carries the idea of a rejection. David has mentioned this hatred of the wicked, this hatred uh, that the wicked have for God first to establish that they indeed are the enemies of God. They are enemies of the Holy One. And David is manifesting that he abhors and rejects the wicked as God does. Therefore, he will have no association with them. He says in Psalm 26 and verse 5, I hate the assembly of evil doers, and I will not sit with the wicked. You know, there are a lot of God's people that sit with the wicked in our day. They do not need to sit with the wicked. This principle is conveyed in the New Testament in, in, in an instruction for Christian believers. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse number 14 through 18 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6 and verse 14 through 18. And we see this New Testament principle really of what David is expressing. He says, Paul says to the Corinthians, and we know how much the Corinthians struggled with their own uh, alignment with worldliness and wickedness. But he says to them, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has, with, has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with the unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from them, from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. There you have that principle that David really is expressing in his own day. And he says in verse 22 that he has a complete hatred for the Lord's enemies, a full, a, uh, one that is truly a righteous indignation towards the wicked. So we must understand that we also, we also should have a hatred for wickedness. We really should. I don't think we have a hatred for evil like we should. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Is to hate evil. So we must recognize evil for what it is and what it's doing to this world. Notice on the opposite spectrum of this, we see that his heart despises the way of the wicked, but his heart also desires the way of the righteous. His heart desires the way of the righteous. And this is where we see the last couple of verses here and we'll be done. He says in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Now I look at this and I have to question and wonder a couple things. He says, Search me, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. You notice that David in verse 23 asks God to search him. But in verse 1, as he opened this book, he said, You have searched me. 
See, God already knows whether or not there's anything grievous or wicked in the heart of David. This is not about God learning something. This is about David learning something. This is about David having God reveal to him something he doesn't see yet. And that's essentially what we all need because we all have blind spots in our Christian life. None of us are perfect. We all have blind spots. You think about God in the Garden of Eden. When he came into the garden, he said, Adam, where are you? Did he know where Adam was? Why did he ask Adam that? Adam needed to see where he was. He was no longer in fellowship with the Holy Creator that made him. And so when we look at what David's saying here, search me, David's making a request, not for God to learn something, but for God to reveal something to him. If there's something in him that is grievous to God, that is, brings about wickedness uh, in his own heart towards God, David wants his own heart to be right with the Lord and not have any wicked thing in his own heart that may grieve him. And we understand that we as Christians must be aware that we too can grieve our God with our own fleshly and sinful lusts that we struggle with. Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption. We need to live in such a way that we don't grieve Him and try not to grieve Him with our flesh. So the heart of David here is plainly seen. He says, Search, see if there be any grievous way in me. And Notice what he closes with. He says, and lead me, lead me. This is God leading him. Lead me in the way everlasting. That is the right way, the everlasting way, the, the way of righteousness as, 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 as we ought to pursue. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that is the manner in which we ought to live as God's redeemed People. So we learned so much from this psalm. We could have taken probably a little bit more time, but the theology that is here is so deep and so rich, but it's not just meant to be head knowledge in our head about how mighty God is, although that's good. It's meant to impact our hearts, as David brings out. So God knows all things. He's all-present. He has fashioned us according to His divine purpose, and this knowledge is truly wonderful and overwhelming to us, and the response that ought to cultivate in our own hearts as Christians is the same that David has. A hatred for wickedness and a love for righteousness. We should bow in awe of our great God. And we ought to seek Him with our hearts. So I pray that this message has been encouragement. pray it's been a blessing to you and uh, maybe given you some, some help for this week. Uh, but we are going to have a time of prayer now. And uh, I'm going to kind of sit back and let Brother Ron lead that portion and so that I can kind of get a visual of how all things flow here. Uh, but uh, appreciate your attention tonight.